0: Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton.
1: Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. to whom honor is owed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, you are source of all light. And by your word, you give light to our souls. And so we ask that you would pour out upon us a spirit of wisdom and understanding that as the Holy Scripture has been read and so now is to be preached that our hearts and our minds might be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As Presbyterians, we believe that the Old and New Testaments are, are Scripture, and they're given by God to be, as our confession puts it, the rule of life and faith. We also believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger Catechism and the shorter Catechism are, although not Scripture, we believe they're excellent summaries of Scripture. Now, the Westminster Standards, as we call them, the, Ca- the Confession and the two Catechisms, the Westminster Standards have served as our standard of doctrine since 1647. That's well before our country was founded, right? Right? And we hold to these as our standards, and, and we should be grateful for this. If you think about it, we hold to the same standards that our forefathers held to, which, in my opinion, provides just a beautiful picture of the historicity and the integrity of our standards, and also a sense of interpretive accuracy. As Presbyterians, we enjoy this rich theological History in the Reformed Christian tradition. And so it may surprise some of us as American Presbyterians to learn that our version of the Confession differs slightly from the original and it differs slightly from the British version of our Confession today. In our version, three chapters are distinctly different. Chapter 20. 23 and 31. Now, these chapters were revised in our version of the Confession in 1788. That's a key date because in 1788 was the founding of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And it was on that formation of our denomination or our historical denomination that these minor changes were made. After that, there were a few changes over the decades that followed, a few changes that occurred, but they were all minor changes. These were the biggies in those three chapters. And so here's my question for you just to think about in this introduction, to think about this. Why was the American church compelled to revise a brilliantly crafted confession that had remained unchanged for well over a century? Why did they feel compelled to change those three chapters in our confession? Well, it's a longer answer than I have time to explain, but the really short version is an expression that all of us will know as Americans. Separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. That's that's the primary reason for those chapters. Now, let me give you an example. The original confession, the power to carry out church discipline was charged to the civil magistrate, the governing authority. The civil magistrate was charged with the, to carry out church discipline with not only preserving peace and unity in the church, but, and I quote, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses of worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. So the civil authority, the civil magistrate, even had the authority to call church councils and to be present to ensure that those councils were governed properly. In other words, imagine your county sheriff tracking your church attendance and then calling a church meeting. That'll give you a little bit of a flavor of what the original confession stated. This, of course, sounds foreign to you. And it sounds foreign to me because we hear it with American ears, don't we? But this should also give us pause Because it means that what our forefathers crafted and what our forefathers believed is distinctly different and sounds remarkably foreign to us. On the one hand, it should lead us to gratitude, shouldn't it? Lead us to gratitude for our country. Lead us to be grateful for our form of government. But it should also remind us that the lens through which we see the lens through which we understand things is impacted by the era and the country in which we live. And all of us are impacted by this. No one is an an exception. We see the world through this era. We see the world through the country. We see the world as Americans. And so as we come to our passage today, we must be careful to approach it humbly. But we must also approach it honestly. As one commentator cautions, quote, It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7 is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. We as Americans can listen to and we can read Romans chapter 13, and I believe there is sort of an inherent repulsion, a sort of inherent, well, I've got 5,000 exceptions, John. I brought them today in case you want to read them. (laughs) As a people who fought a revolutionary war, and founded a country from it. We seem to have an inherent distrust of government. This hasn't changed over time. But it has become sort of a defining characteristic. Of what it means to be an American. Visit another country. And look back and see Americans through the eyes of others. And you're going to see this very clearly. They may even call you, like my friends in Scotland call me, a cowboy. Yeah. Hey, those, of you know, you, those of you who know me well, you know I'm, I'm no cowboy, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but they see it that way. Oh, you're an American cowboy. Except they don't do it with a southern accent. They do it with that awesome Scottish accent, right? And a certain distrust of government can actually be healthy. There is a certain benefit to this. But there's also the darker underbelly of this as well. Consider that in the era in which we live, hooligans stormed our capital, decent people believe weirdo conspiracy theories, and the respect of civil authority and specifically personalities of our civil authority fall right on party lines. I'll respect this person because they're a Republican. I'll respect this person because they're a Republican. Such is the temporal age in which we live. God's word is not temporal, it's eternal. So, you and I, as we approach this passage, we better work really hard to remove the lenses. That we see God's word through. So that we can see the eternal truth of it. That's my prayer. That should be your prayer as well. And so let's look to God's word. Not jaded by the temporality of our day. But let us humbly seek to know the will of God. And specifically considering our God-given government, our subjecting to it, our protection by it, and our obligation to it. Those are the three things I want to draw out to your attention today. Our subjection to God-given government, our protection by God-given government, our obligation to god governed government. Let's start with everybody's favorite topic, subjection. Paul couldn't say it any more clearly, could he? look at the first verse with me. Let every person, in the Greek there is literally the word soul. So to translate this literally, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. I wonder what Paul means by that. Surely there's sort of some sort of veiled inference. Surely we should read something into that, shouldn't we? No, that's what he means. Submit Be in submission to the governing authorities. Every soul. And so Paul writes to the church here, but really his scope is broader, isn't it? Who's every soul? Every human being. Every human being who lives under a government in which God has providentially placed them, and no less every Christian. The governing authorities here is referring to Not you, not me, not some vigilante who thinks the election was stolen. Nope. Who's the authority here? The legitimate civil authority. We're going to learn more about this civil authority as we work our way through the passage. But the real struggle for us is the verb, right? The verb here is to be subject. Or it could also be translated To be submissive. Or it could just be simply translated submit as a command. Submit. To be subject to means what? It means that we consciously submit under authority. In this case, the governing authorities. Of course, our larger and shorter catechism have much more to say about authority and submission to it. But in this passage... Romans chapter 13 we're specifically talking about the governing authorities. And this verb which translated to be subject to or to submit also carries the connotation of obedience to obey the authority. And here's the struggle, isn't it? I don't want to submit to authority. In my flesh. And and, and you don't either. But of course it's not just civil authority. But, but my flesh and your flesh is repulsed by all authority. I mean, we are rebels. We're children, naturally, of Adam and Eve, right? That's our history. That's what we come from. We are rebels by nature. And we are rebels especially to God's authority. And by we, I mean every human being. You just happened to be here this morning, right? All of us, we are all rebels by nature, especially to God's authority, which is why Paul confronts our flesh with this truth. Look at it with me. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But, 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 John, but, 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 John, what about, what about, stop it. Quit it. Stop trying to come up with all the exceptions that you want to argue back with with Scripture. Just let Scripture speak this morning. Can we do that? Can we just listen? Can we just take it in? Let's just let Scripture, let's let the Word of God speak without all of the exceptions that you want to throw back at us. We'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, let Scripture speak. And what is Scripture saying? God is sovereign. And in His sovereign care, He establishes and He empowers government. And He punishes those who resist it. Look again at the text. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist it will incur judgment. Now again, we may be quick to push back against this, to offer exceptions, to argue with alternatives. And have you noticed up until this point? Well, if you've read the whole ver- the whole passage, have you noticed that Paul introduces no exceptions? None. There are other exceptions in Scripture. Paul, at this point, is trying to teach a bunch of hard-headed people like me, like you, the truth. And so he gives no exceptions. This leads commentator 19th century Scottish Presbyterian Robert Haldane, which I don't quote uh, in my sermon today, but I read his commentary on this, and Haldane is like, doesn't even go there. He doesn't even contemplate that there might even possibly be an exception. He gets to the heart of the matter. You don't want to be under God's authority. You hate it. Oh, John, you don't, no, that's not true. Yeah, I know you do, because I do too. It's demonstrated every time that I react against this passage. Paul's direction here, note, is not giving instruction to the civil authority. He doesn't say, now I'd like to move on to the governors. Governors, here's how you need to X, Y, Z. He doesn't do that. He's talking to the citizens. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's not giving any exceptions. He says, listen up. Here's how it is. Because the civil authority is God's authority. Although rare, there can come a time when we should not submit. And I know the one that everybody wants to give, and so I'm going to give it. So it's already out there, right? So in the case of the Holocaust, under German Nazi authority. That's a time to revolt, right? That's a time in in, in which we say, okay, that's a time to stand up as the church should have done in Germany at that time. But the second question, and I think this is far more important than the 5,000 exceptions we want to give, the better question is, how do you know the time? How do you know when it's time to revolt, how do you know when it's time to submit and obey the governing authority? And I'm not going to go into great depth here. I'm going to direct you to Daniel. Daniel's a great place to go on this to look at how Daniel behaved because he serves as an excellent example of balance. Daniel submitted in loyal service to an egomaniac pagan king. And yet... Simultaneously, Daniel refused to obey the king's law when it did what? This is key. When it did what? When it clearly, without a doubt, with no exceptions, completely violated the law of God. When it is in complete contradiction to God's word, most of Daniel's life was lived in subjection To that pagan king. In fact, a great way to look at the book of Daniel also is to understand that the first half of Daniel is giving us the very few exceptions in which Daniel didn't obey. We don't hear about the rest of his life and the rest of his life obeying in subjection to, in submission to, in obedience to the pagan king and later kings that followed. And here's why we need to remember this. And it was read in our scripture reading this morning. Our God is sovereign. There is never any time, there is never any nanosecond in which something slips outside of His sovereign care. Ever. And that means that God is the one who raised up, as He told Him, that means that God is the one who appointed, and He told Him, Nebuchadnezzar. One of the vile leaders of Scripture. And yet, when it was time, not Daniel's time, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time, not anybody's time, but God's time, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And He made him eat grass like an animal. He made him look like an animal. And God humbled him in his time, not your time. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar could say. Quote, And this is from the mouth of a pagan king who finally sees it. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? For all his works are right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. And so let us attend to this king's counsel. Let us listen very closely, because he walked, he learned, not to walk in pride, but in humility. And so should we, submitting to the governing authority. Let me remind you of this gospel point. If Jesus' disciples had decided to storm the capital to save Jesus, to keep Him from going to the cross, Peter tried, I might add, with a sword, with a weapon. He tried. If they had tried to prevent what God had sovereignly ordained, Think about the eternal consequences of that. And yet, our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed. Our Lord Jesus Christ was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah says. Our Lord Jesus Christ was tried on false pretenses, found guilty while perfectly innocent, crucified as a criminal... On an instrument of Roman torture and shame. Our Lord Jesus Christ took your sin and my sin. Upon himself in that moment of political turmoil and shame. And God ordained it all. It pleased him to smite our Savior. And if God was sovereign over that moment in time. Are you kidding me? He's sovereign over this time too. He's sovereign over today like he was then. He's sovereign over yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so the civil authority is God's authority whether we like it or not. Secondly, and I love that Paul takes us here, is that while there are many reasons government exists, One of the primary reasons government exists is to protect us. To protect us. Now, while the cynic argues that what we really need is protection from the government, Paul will have none of that, will he? There's no cynicism in what Paul says. He says what? He says that God establishes and empowers the civil authority to protect us. And what does he say specifically? Well, I'll paraphrase. Our God sovereignly ordains the civil authority to protect you from me. And me from you. Right? To protect us from the bad behavior of our neighbor. Or to state it positively, God-given government promotes the welfare of His people. God-given government promotes the welfare of His people. I quoted from... Jeremiah, last week, it is instruction to the Israelites when they were in captivity in Babylon and how they were to live. Well, the same applies here as well. The problem, more often than not, is not government, but those who are to be governed. We're the problem, right? And since fallen human beings do what we do best, and what do we do best? Sin. We're professionals, right? That's what we do best. And since our sin often involves our neighbor, governments serve to to protect us from each other. And even to protect us from ourselves. So then I have a little prayer that we pray when we're trying to make hard decisions. Oh God, keep me from myself. Oh God, keep me from myself. Well... Guess what? Sometimes God even uses the governing authority to keep us from ourselves and from our neighbor. To explain what is seemingly obvious, Paul uses fearsome language to make his point. Look at the text with me. What does he say about rulers? He says, and I quote, they are a terror. It's a fascinating word in the Greek. It is a word that is lead, to lead us to, as we would say here in the South, to shake in our boots, to quiver with fear. Rulers are a terror. But who are they a terror to? Well, they're a terror to bad behavior. Terror implies fierce judgment, to be avoided by good behavior. And so what that means is law-abiding conduct, behaving for the welfare of our neighbor, is a blessing. It's a be- blessing to our neighbor. It is a blessing to us. In other words, it is logical, and it's almost—I almost laugh when I explain this because it's just so plain and simple here. But it is logical that we should fear the judgment of the civil authority if we break the law. But if we live obediently, we have nothing to fear. I, I know. I know that the media is. Wonderful at doing this. I know that social media can make you scare and make you fear every single thing that happens in Washington, D.C. That's what they do. I know that television news, what they do best is angst and entertainment. And they're the same thing in what they do. They just make you fear and worry and get all troubled about everything. But here's what i found, folks. What I've found is that we, in truth, fear what we shouldn't fear and don't fear what we should. We're scared to death of what we shouldn't be scared of at all, and we get scared of what... And we're not scared, or we're not rightly fearful, of what we should be fearful of. Know this. Hear me loud and clear. Where there is fleshly fear, you can be sure the evil one is lurking. So that means when your television set, or your social media account or other forms of media get to you to where you can't sleep at night, and you're so anxious and you're so fearful about what that mean old government is doing to you, and all of the other weirdo conspiracy theories that you're hearing, it means that the devil's not very far from that very thing. He loves it. Oh, he loves it. He loves for you to fear in a way that only your flesh can be exalted And yet, we often often fear what God has given to protect us. And we don't fear ourselves and what we're capable of. We often fear God-given government and we don't fear ourselves. When in reality, God says, I gave you that to protect you. But you really ought to be afraid of yourself. Man, you are capable of a lot of wicked things. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we must fear God. And if you rightly fear God, you will not allow yourselves to be led into entertainment-driven anxiety. And all of the other things that come with that. He who is sovereign over soul and body. He established government. He empowers government. And he who bears the sword. Avenges the just. Carries out the wrath of God as Paul puts it. Is the minister of God. Did you catch that? He's the minister of God. On his behalf. We are all too often fearing what God gives and inadvertently rejecting His authority over us. God have mercy on us, His rebellious and stiff-necked people. Well, likely for this reason, Paul couples our conscience with a healthy fear. He couples our conscience with a healthy fear of God's wrath. Look at the text with me. One must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, oftentimes we just read right by that, as if it's some sort of mild conviction. But the commentators that I follow uh, believe that this is probably referring to the Christian's conscience. I mean, you think about this. Back in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that we are to know that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so it's the Word of God that forms our conscience, right? Our conscience is matured and grown and strengthened in the Word of God. And so, Christians know that lawbreakers will be punished. But different than the world... Our motivation comes not from the fear of retribution, but what? We're not afraid of the penalty. That's not our main motivation and subjection to government. It's what? It's because we're in God's Word and we understand His providence. We know, ah, my God is sovereign. This is how He works. We know that government like all other common grace blessings. And let me help you here with this. We need to change our terminology and stop thinking of government as a curse. I'll tell you what a curse is. Anarchy. That's a curse. Government, and I might add, this has been handed down from generation to generation by our Presbyterian forefathers. Government is a blessing. Even John Knox, who had a few run-ins with the governing authority, I might add, even John Knox could confess the same. Government is a common grace blessing from God. And so, God uses the governing authority we are to be subject to to protect us. And so what's our obligation to it? What is our obligation to the civil authorities? If government is established and empowered by God, if the civil authority is to be the servant of God, then what is our obligation? And I want you to, literally, I want you to think about this. If you're taking notes, maybe you're jotting down some ideas. What are our obligations? Well, just in this passage, we know, for one thing, that one of our obligations is to be subject to, to submit, to obey the civil authority. We're to obey the laws, whether we like the laws or not. Uh, Paul, in writing to Timothy, here's another possibility. You may be thinking about, well, I'm supposed to pray for the authority. And that's not in our passage, is it? When Paul's writing to Timothy, he says that we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, meaning pray for those who are in authority. And so subjection and obedience and prayer are all obligations we have to our government. But Paul includes a very tangible aspect of our submission and obedience and perhaps another reason why we should be faithful in prayer and it's what? Look at the flow of the text. I'm preaching through the text, right? Look down what's coming next. Paying taxes. If you couldn't hear me, I said paying taxes. Right there, paying taxes. Taxes. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not here to give you a history on taxation. It's beyond the sermon. But here's what we need to remember. Remember that little mantra from our Revolutionary War? No taxation without representation. We studied that in school, right? In the scope of history, that's a relatively modern concept. Taxation's not... Taxation has been around for, as I would imagine, as long as government has. Now, while we may think of taxes, like government, as a necessary evil, Paul points us again to our conscience. Ah, there we go again. Point us to our conscience. What's he say? Look with me. For the sake of conscience, look at the flow of the sentence there. For the sake of conscience, pay taxes. In other words, because God establishes, because God empowers, because God works through government, we pay our taxes and we pay our taxes with gratitude to God. That'll change your April 15th, won't it? We pay our taxes with gratitude to God. This conscience direction, this conscious conscience-motivated direction does not negate our responsibility of citizens. And I might add, this does not give government willy-nilly over all that we pay in in our taxes. We are responsible to pay. Our government is responsible to use those taxes responsibly. I love the way that John Calvin, writing hundreds of years ago, I love the healthy balance that he has on this. Listen, here's what Calvin says. He says, Paul takes the opportunity of mentioning tributes, meaning taxes, and he bases his reason for paying taxes on the office of the magistrates. It is their responsibility to defend and preserve uninjured the peace of the upright and to resist the impious attempts of the wicked. They cannot do this unless they are assisted by force and strong protection. Tributes, therefore, are to be paid by law to support such necessities. It is right, however, that they should remember that all that they receive from the people is public property and not a means of satisfying private lust and luxury. (laughs) That was written in the 16th century, by the way, right? Some reject sense of balanced perspective. Especially if our tax dollars support things that we despise. And to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have wisdom. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have discernment. I'm not saying that we should maturely and peacefully engage. Clearly, we should. But as I understand it, we should stand against immorality in our country, we should hold our government accountable. And we should pay all that is owed to them. What's owed to them? What's our obligation to them? Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What's Paul doing there? He's trying to put together a comprehensive understanding. What is our obligation to God-given government? Now... In case you haven't noticed this, and I've said it before, I want to say it again. Paul, in this passage, is far more concerned with your and my Christian conduct than he is the governing authorities' conduct. And again, I know this pushes back to everything in our media culture in which the public servants in Washington, D.C., are told, you're told that they're the most important people in your life whose conduct you must scrutinize for added entertainment and angst. But, let's take a lesson for Paul, shall we? Paul's concern is my attitude. Paul's concern is my conduct, and your attitude, and your conduct, because we are the body of Christ. That's the key. And so we pay our taxes. We respect our leaders. We honor our governing authorities. And what does that do? Well, I'll tell you this, it tells a whole lot more about you and me than it does about our government. It sings pretty loud. Many a witness has been lost by not paying what is due. Never a soul has been won from ranting over rule. The Apostle Paul, or rather, the Apostle Peter writes For this is the will of God, that by doing good, You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Conveying this attitude, Paul employs the language of finance. Pay to all what is owed. And to be clear, this is not like a study. He didn't change subjects. He's not all of a sudden talking about personal finance or debt or anything like that. No, the context tells us he is employing a financial term to tell us something about what is due and what we owe. We have a debt. We need to pay it. We are to be diligent in our duties. Pay every tax due. Pay every fee owed. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But remember, we must also render to God the things that are God's. And because the governing authority is the servant of God, we pay respect and we pay honor. At varying times and varying conditions, these words I realize truthfully that they're harder to follow sometimes rather than others. And yes... Sometimes that which is Caesar's, we cannot render if it is in direct and clear violation to God's word. Rightly and with respect, did Peter and John stand against the Jewish council? When the Jewish council said, you shall not preach in Jesus' name anymore, and what did they say? Well, government said it, I can't do it. No, they knew that was in direct violation of the word of Christ, and how did they respond? Well, they did it respectfully and with honor. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. But more often than not, more often than not, God-given government is not acting contrary to God's word. It's simply acting contrary to what you want. More often than not, we must, learn to, be, we must humble, learn to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, learning to submit for Christ's sake. In closing, in a special address in which the, former, the late and former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was addressing the Church of Scotland, she said these words, "...the truths of the Judaic Christian tradition are infinitely precious." not only, as I believe, because they are true, but also because they provide the moral impulse which alone can lead to that peace for which we all long. There is little hope for democracy if the hearts of men and women in democratic societies cannot be touched by a call to something greater than themselves. Political structures, state institutions, collective ideas are not enough. We parliamentarians can legislate for the rule of law. You, the church, can teach the life of faith. And she's right. But we can do more than teach, can't we? We can live out our Christian faith in the public square, testifying that the Lord we serve, He and He alone is sovereign, not only over the government, but also He is sovereign over the hearts and the minds of those who believe on him. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the easy passages, and we thank you for the hard ones. And we thank you that you who know us so well that we are indeed dust, that we need to hear this so clearly preached by the Apostle Paul, through your Holy Spirit, may we be not merely hearers, but doers of your word. O God, have mercy upon us, your people. May the gospel shine clearly through us as we are faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.